Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 16, Renewed Vigor, 1949. I'm Keith Pilly. Um, before we get into the main meat, though, there's some quick listener response. Gordon from Toledo writes, Hey, loving the show. I'm just wondering, these names the monsters go by seem awfully casual. This isn't what they were really called, right? And uh, th- thanks, for the, uh, thanks for the question. Um, I, I think I mentioned this in passing in an earlier episode, but uh, you know, I didn't directly address it square on. The, uh, the Navy actually had like formal designations for the creatures, but they were all, you know, in 40s naval bureaucraties speak. So it was like fibrous humanoid alpha two or I don't even remember. They just, they were, they were all like they're un, unusable, unmemorable things. Uh, very quickly when the creatures showed up, the newspapers came up with you know, 40s style newspaper names. Um, and those really, that's what stuck. Um, even, I think I mentioned this in an early episode, there's uh, our call transcripts where you can hear Chester Nimitz complaining on the phone about, you know, that goddamn blackjack kraken. Um, that's just, that's what everyone called them. That wasn't, there were official names, but those official names only appeared in official reports. And uh, yeah, so I'm... Simplifying things by using the newspaper names, but that is also a reflection of the lived experience of, you know, the dudes on the destroyers who were afraid of getting swept over the deck. So uh, thanks for the question. Please keep them coming. Um, Yeah. Right on then. Last week, we talked about Project Mousetrap, the program proposed by the Trumbull Group based on research performed by Kay Hendry's team. Mousetrap sought to combat the sea creatures by using their own behaviors against them. Instead of trying to fight them with modified anti-ship weapons, Mousetrap used the creature's propensity to attack ships and attraction to a particular sonar frequency to lure them into attacking explosive-laden ships that were towed around convoys. The project, as we discussed, saw a major success right away in taking out Seagird the Sea Serpent, which I have to add, you know, that was his newspaper name. His real designation was something like Aquatic Serpentoid Kappa S, or I don't even remember what. It's that, that, That's why we use the newspaper names. Anyway, <laughs> this week, can this mousetrap thing be as good as it seems? Late summer and early fall of 1949 were a time of renewed effort on the part of the United States. In the Pacific, mousetraps slowly moved from proof-of-concept exercises to a full-fledged doctrinal system, with the Navy working out operational concepts that allowed convoys to run wrapped in cocoons of mousetrap-towing destroyers. Seaman Matthew Davis of the merchant tanker Crosby told the FCDP, quote, 49 was a weird year. We'd been going out to sea for a while then, more and more solid after San Francisco. Then in 49, they're like, hey, now you're going to go out there and we're going to have a bunch of ships around you towing these barges. And guess what? The barges blow up. It didn't really inspire a ton of confidence, you know. But a paycheck was a paycheck, and we all needed them. 
And anyway, you didn't want to look like a puss in front of the boys. Those early mousetrap runs, every one of those ships in the convoy was full of sailors who were scared shitless but didn't want to look weak. So we all went. <laughs> anyway, it worked. For the most part, anyway. Better than that thing with the firebombs earlier. And way better than all the useless shit they'd been doing back when every third ship that left Seattle was getting sunk with all hands. I started believing that I might actually live long enough to, I don't know, get married or have kids or something. It was crazy how fast you got used to it. I'd be on the deck of the Crosby doing whatever, and then the sirens would start going off, and you'd just know, okay, there's going to be a hell of an explosion in about five minutes. And then, boom. And then, on with your day. Hell of a thing. End quote. Stateside, the burgeoning success of the Mousetrap program lifted spirits and directly improved lives. Signe Young of Indianapolis told the FCDP, quote, I honestly stood and cried the first time I saw a pineapple at the market. Isn't that crazy? But it was a real thing. It meant that, by God, they weren't lying to us about being able to get to Hawaii. It was real, tangible proof that we were finally winning. Plus, I loved pineapple, and it was great to be able to get it again. I stood there in the aisle of the market and sobbed for a few minutes straight. My friend Kathy happened to pass by and came over and cried with me. She knew what was going on. We all felt it. You have to imagine what it's like to experience nothing but darkness for four years, and that's forgetting about the war, and then have that burden lifted. It gives you whiplash. It's a good kind of whiplash, but still, your whole sense of what to expect from the world and how you're supposed to react to it just doesn't make sense anymore. End quote. The progress wasn't limited to the North Pacific. Further south, work proceeded apace on the restoration of the Panama Canal. In the Bay Area, in August, the Army Corps of Engineers began sending teams in to evaluate damage and fallout and begin plans for cleanup and reconstruction. The reports were not encouraging. San Francisco Bay was ringed with utter destruction from the atomic bombs, from the fallout from those bombs, from the kelp man's rampage, from sporadic looting from criminals who had slipped the Bay Area Exclusion Zone cordon, from the fires after the bombing, and from decay brought on by lack of maintenance. Rehabilitating even part of the Bay Area for residents to return would take years and a double-digit percentage of the national budget. But Dewey felt that it would be both inhumane and political malpractice not to make the effort, so he pushed as hard as he could, and the work began. This renewed vigor came at a price, though. In terms of both material assets and mental attention, the United States had limited resources at the time, and they were all directed towards the Pacific. And other world leaders were quite aware of this fact. At the end of the war in Europe, Germany had been partitioned into four occupation zones, one each administered by the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union. The city of Berlin lay geographically within the Soviet occupation zone, but the city itself was also demarcated into separate eastern and western occupation zones, with logistical access for the western side provided by a single highway that ran through Soviet-occupied Germany. The situation had been precarious but static for several years. But in late 1949, Joseph Stalin saw an opening with Dewey and the United States focused on the Pacific. 
It was already becoming clear, of course, that the Soviets were having their own difficulties with sea creatures in the Pacific, but the simple geographic fact of a direct land connection to Europe and the presence of the Red Army in occupied Germany gave Stalin latitude to act that Dewey simply did not have. In early September, Soviet occupation forces closed the highway connecting West Berlin to the Allied occupation zone. Protests were brought before the fledgling United Nations. The Soviet ambassador openly shrugged at them. The French and British governments, terrified at the prospect of a reopened war in Europe, quietly suggested that the Allies cut Berlin loose. Dewey's military advisors in Washington, particularly Douglas MacArthur, who, having retired, had no formal role but remained a top-level informal consultant to the White House, and, uh, and Curtis LeMay, pushed hard for a vigorous response up to and including the use of atomic weapons. But Dewey, taking a hard look at what was required in the Pacific and what the overall capacities of the United States at that moment were, pushed back against his advisors. Yes, Soviet absorption of West Berlin was terrible. Yes, it was a setback both for freedom and for American interests. And yes, it would probably just encourage Stalin to try for more. But what else could be done? If the Pacific crisis had possibly stopped getting worse, it certainly wasn't going to continue to get better without extended effort and resources, effort and resources that would then not be available to back up any threats made against the Soviets in Germany. And Dewey was certainly not ready for atomic escalation. In a grudging aside towards the end of a speech on economic policy, Dewey mentioned, with practiced casualness, that it was not the policy of the United States at this time to intervene in logistical questions in Europe. These anodyne lines encompassed the acquiescence of Soviet control of West Berlin, and everyone knew it. Dewey later called that speech, quote, the hardest damn thing I ever had to say, end quote. The news was received with a mixture of outrage and relief. Most of the country was ready to see Berlin go, if that was the price of peace, and if that meant that resources could continue to pour into the attempt to reclaim the Pacific. Senator Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire said as much to the New York Times, quote, I have spoken extensively to the people of New Hampshire, and almost without fail, every one of them would prefer that, if we have a dollar, we spend it on ourselves in the Pacific, rather than elsewhere trying to be the world's policeman, end quote. But there was a smaller but muscular outraged response among people who felt that this kind of buckling to communism was disastrous. In a speech to the American Legion, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover publicly stated that it was his personal belief that the entire sea creature crisis had been manufactured by Stalin and Soviet scientists, pointing to Soviet gains in Berlin and Japan as clear-cut proof. Quote, I am not normally in the business of quoting Vladimir Lenin, Hoover said. But even a stopped clock is correct twice a day, and this degenerate demagogue did occasionally make a useful utterance. And one of them is apt in this situation, quite apt indeed. Who benefits? If one takes a cold-eyed look at the rise of the menace in the Pacific and America's synchronous loss of standing in the world, Lenin's question rings loud and clear as does, I'm afraid, its answer." End quote. As 1949 drew to a close, 
the possible slow turn of the tide in the sea creature crisis made its presence felt in popular culture, too. The top-grossing movie of 1949 was Into Danger, a Howard Hawks production starring Humphrey Bogart as Pearl Harbor Base Commander Admiral Charles Stewart and Montgomery Clift as Major Dennis Young. Into Danger retold the story of the 1947 creature attack on Pearl Harbor, revising the story with an upbeat ending where Young's self-sacrifice sparked the turning point in the conflict. Notably, military governor Art Peters was completely absent from the narrative. In actuality, he had just begun a lifetime sentence at Leavenworth Federal Prison, a decision having been made that his behavior warranted the death penalty, but that execution would have drawn more attention to something that the Dewey administration preferred would just be forgotten. So, overall, things were generally looking up. Or at least, out on the water in the Pacific, they'd stopped getting worse, whatever was going on in Europe. There was still a long way to go. And, if El Polpo, Sigurd, and the Keltman had all been accounted for, that still left the biggest, baddest, and most feared of the primaries out there on the loose, still striking terror into the hearts of sailors. Blackjack Kraken was still out there. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as we check back in on our old pal, Black Jack. Thanks, and be well. Sim Krakens.